Have you ever breathed new life into something? Maybe you were married for a while and you decided you'd have date night, and date night breathed new life into your relationship. Or maybe you're working on a project at work for a long time and you made some breakthrough and it kind of breathed new life into the project. If you breathe new life into something, it kind of changes the directory, gives it a, a renewed sense of possibilities and hope. It looks like something's over, but it kind of finds new life. Have you ever wondered where the phrase breathing new life comes from? Well, today we're going to take a stab at it, and we're going to do that in another biblical story out of the book of Ezekiel. Now, for my money, Ezekiel is the most difficult book in the entire Bible. It makes Revelation look like it's plain and simple. It's just a hard book. Uh, Ezekiel is about the same time as Daniel. In fact, it probably happens a little bit before Daniel does, which we talked about last week. So we've got the cream of the crop of uh, Judean, lower Israel. Society has been taken to Babylon. Everybody who has something to offer to the empire is living in Babylon. And they're getting messages back and forth, basically, as the army goes back and forth and brings new captives. And they're just hoping against hope that maybe everything will go well and the war will be over and they'll get to go home again. And in chapter 33, they get word that the city of Jerusalem, the capital, the center of their identity, has fallen to the foreign army. And it's absolutely devastating to them. Uh, to imagine that everything that they held dear, the temple, the city, their homes, was all gone. Absolutely stone from stone ripped apart. Not only would it be devastating to lose everything that helped identify you as who you are and what, part, what tribe you were from, but it also probably meant that they were going to stay in Babylon for the rest of their lives. And if they didn't stay in Babylon, they would go home to something that was completely unrecognizable. So you can understand how devastating this would have been for the people. So it brings up all kinds of questions for them, like it would for us. Have we been abandoned? Does God care about us anymore? Will we ever go back to our normal lives? Will normal ever happen again? I was thinking about what things were like for many of us during the whole pandemic. And it, this was like this on steroids. Will we ever get our lives back? And it looked like the answer to that was no. And then, of course, there was the huge theological question because they're ending up in Babylon in exile because they didn't follow God. So there's the whole God question. Will has God abandoned us? Can we ever have a relationship with God again? And then that leads us to where we are a couple of chapters later in Ezekiel chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. So God is going to show Ezekiel a vision. And I, I was thinking about the, the third vision in A Christmas Carol. Uh, the first couple of visions, the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, are relatively positive and happy. And then the ghost of Christmas yet to come, 
shows up and it's just scary. And he ends up taking Ebenezer Scrooge to a graveyard and you know, absolutely nothing good is going to come out of this vision. So, you know, if, if God shows up and he says, I'm going to give you a vision, you want it to look like Hawaii. You want there to be palm trees and a balmy breeze and an ocean. You don't want to show up in a graveyard or a valley of dry bones. So what good is going to come out of this? So they're in a valley and it's filled with dry bones. I mean, look at the scale. It's not just a room, it's this large valley. And in case Ezekiel misses the, the point of it, it says that God kind of trots him up and down the whole length of it, and everywhere you go, there are bones, bones everywhere. And it makes the point that these aren't just bones, these are dry bones. There is absolutely no life in them. If, if you came across a body on the side of the road, you'd probably try to perform CPR on it to revive the body. This is not like that. This is like there ain't no hope for these things. So what God is showing him is this scene of utter destruction. And then God asks him this question, can these bones live? I'm thinking the answer is no. And I think that's what Ezekiel thought too because he's just looked at all of these dead, dead bones. No, they're not gonna live again. But maybe you just had a momentary pause in your head. You're like, well, I don't know. You might even disagree with that. And the reason why I think is because we live on the other side of the resurrection. And now you see why the story is so important. Because it's introducing a very important idea and truth. And we'll talk more about that later. But Ezekiel is in the midst of this graveyard and God asks him, can these bones live again? And I think the most diplomatic thing that Ezekiel can say is what he does. God, I think you recognize the answer is no. So, very interesting interaction. Just a quick little riff on the Son of Man thing, because that's how God addressed him, and it comes up a little bit later. Ezekiel uses the title Son of Man more than any other book in the Bible, and then it's actually picked up in Daniel, and then it was Jesus' favorite term for himself. Son of Man in the Old Testament basically means human being. It's just dude, is how it works. And then in Daniel, in Daniel uh, chapter 7, it becomes associated with God and the fulfillment of God's plan. In Daniel 7, verse 13, it says, In my vision at night, so this is Daniel having a vision, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, like a human being, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So the title, dude, human being, all of a sudden becomes associated with this person who is somewhat like God. And this becomes Jesus' favorite title for himself. He never calls himself the Son of God, but he refers to himself as the Son of Man a lot. And it's because it's a little bit subtle. It means human being, but if you heard Son of Man in that context, a lot of people would go, wait a minute, this sounds pretty familiar. This sounds like Daniel's Son of Man. It's kind of one of those, for those who have ears to hear, let them hear kind of thing. So the question is out there, God, I don't know whether the bones can live or not. Verse four, then he said to me, 
prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. So I guess the answer is yes, the bones can come to life. It's important in the way in which it happens. Uh, the prof he prophesies and the bones come together and then the muscles and the tendons, the ligaments, all the connective tissue, and then the skin finally covers them, which is pretty impressive, but they still aren't alive. Verse 9, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. I important note here. So what animates us is not our bodies coming together. What makes us alive is the breath of God. And in this passage and all throughout, particularly the Old Testament, breath and wind and spirit are all the same word. So it could be any of those things. But the focus here and why I think it's separated out that, that everything comes together and they look human, but they aren't human until the breath comes on them, is to focus us on seeing the creative power of God and how it's God's breath that makes us human and alive. And it's somewhat reminiscent, uh, this idea of the uh, uh, breath from the four corners of the world, it's somewhat reminiscent of Genesis chapter one, where you have the spirit of God that's hovering over the chaos, ready to create. Genesis 1-2 says, now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So it's like that spirit that's hovering over the earth is now called from the earth to focus the power of God on recreating these dead people, reanimating them by the spirit, the wind, the breath of God. Verse 11, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. So here's the application of the prophecy and the vision that Ezekiel has had. It, God is saying, this is you guys. This valley of dead, dry bones, this is you. And this is what you're saying. We're dead. Jerusalem has fallen. We're in exile. We're receiving the consequences of turning our back on God. We're dead and all hope is gone. But then it's like God says, not so fast, because my intention is to open up the graves. My intention is to bring new life into you. 
My intention is to bring you back from exile. And so it's a story about contrasting the hopelessness of their situation because they feel dead and cut off and the hope that God brings because he is not done yet. It's kind of descriptive of Israel's spiritual state, but also it's sort of descriptive of the metaphorical death of the covenant relationship that they have had with God. They've rebelled against God and it ends in death. And the only hope is that God would recreate and breathe new life into them. And that's exactly what God intends to do. So let me make some points about this passage. The first is, that God's disposition is not anger, it's recreation. God is in the process of making everything new. And this is a really important story because it breaks new ground. I mean, so much of what we believe goes back to what happens in this story. We talked a little bit about Genesis 1, about the Holy Spirit hovering over the pre-creation. But now this story of the dry bones takes us a little bit further. It's kind of a recount of Genesis chapter 2, where God forms Adam out of the dust of the ground, and then he becomes alive when God breathes his breath, his spirit, into them. Genesis 2-7, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. We're animated by the presence of God's spirit with us. But here, God is not just giving life, God is restoring it. He's taking that which was once alive and is now dead and is raising it to a new life. And it's not just kind of a do-over because he's remaking them in a way where they're gonna be able to keep the covenant that they couldn't before by loving God and by loving each other. And so this is the beginning of the stories of the resurrection power of God in our lives. And then if we kind of move forward, jump forward in the story, there's another layer of meaning also because it recalls the story after the resurrection when Jesus meets his disciples and he breathes on them and recreates them. This is in John 20, verses 21 and following. Again, Jesus said to his disciples, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is resurrected. The power of sin and death has been broken. The old order has passed away. All things are being made new. And so as a symbol of the new creation, of the new life that the disciples are called to, that we're called to because of the resurrection, Jesus breathes on them the recreating Holy Spirit so that they can be made new. And we're animated by the presence of the Holy Spirit with us, making us new. We're raised to a new life along with Jesus. That all begins in this story. Next point I want to make is that God wants to be in relationship with us. There's this important refrain in the text where God says, you will know that I am the Lord. When I do this, you will know that I am the Lord, and then you'll worship me. Uh, we, we've talked a couple of weeks ago about how people were basically pragmatists, as are we. 
They were looking for the God who worked, the God who was real, the God who made a difference. And God does these things to demonstrate his reality as opposed to all of the other idols and things that people chase after. So that's the refrain. I'm going to make you new. I'm going to raise you to new, new life. I'm going to give you hope so that when I do those things, you will know that I am the Lord. The next point is that sin is serious business. And that's ultimately what brings us to the point of this story. The prophets had tried over and over to call people back to the covenant, to call people back to following God with their whole heart and not chasing after other idols. But instead, they continue in rebellion, they continue in sin. And sin is always about death, always. It might not seem like it in the moment, might seem like a little white sin or a sin that is no big deal or a sin that doesn't have victims, but sin will always lead to death. Sin brings the death of relationships. Sin brings the death of trust between people. Sin tears us down. Sin will destroy the integrity and the safety of a marriage. Sin will ruin the trust between friends and coworkers and it will literally break our bodies down if we live in it long enough. Do you know how much energy it takes to live a lie? To have a secret that no one can know? To have a double life that you have to always jealously guard because it would ruin you? It will wear you down. And there is no victimless sins. There are just consequences that we don't see. And I think most of us have a fairly decent moral compass, particularly as followers of Jesus. And we know in our heart of hearts that some stuff is right and leads to good things. Other things are wrong and lead to bad things. Now, please don't think of someone else here. Think only of you. And when the plank is out of your eye, then you can feel free to start looking at the splinter in somebody else's eyes. But God takes sin. God takes bad behavior seriously because it's sin that literally destroys the world and the people in it. It's sin that got us to the place where we are now. The issue is, for us a lot of times, is we want God to take other people's sin seriously and we want a mulligan for ours. It's that fundamental attribution error that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. If someone else sins or does something wrong, it's a character flaw. If I sin, it's because I'm the victim of circumstance. But all sin is serious, and we need to learn to treat it that way. Next, there will be valleys. There will be valleys that feel like they're filled with death, that feel like they're filled with dry bones. Sometimes we get placed in those valleys. And it is a difficult place. It might be a place that feels like hopelessness, but it also might be an opportunity for faith that's been set in front of us. I mean, there's this question, can these bones live? And maybe you're looking at the remains of a broken relationship. Maybe you're looking at the remains of I don't know what, a financial da disaster or a setback or just the consequences of a bad choice that you made and you realize that you're just surrounded by death and destruction and it feels hopeless. But this question still comes, can these bones live? And at first it seems like a ridiculous question. No, because they're dead. 
But is it really a ridiculous question? Is it maybe an opportunity for faith? Is it maybe an opportunity to go, Sovereign Lord, you know, and you can do it because you're the God who can bring life out of death. And you're standing around in the midst of maybe a really dark, dark time and wondering, is God gone? Can I ever live again? Maybe it's an opportunity for faith to trust that God can bring life out of the death that you're experiencing. And then there's this wonderful promise in there when God says, in spite of how things look, in spite of the hopelessness of the situation you're in, in spite of feeling like there is death and darkness all around you, I love these words, I will open up your graves and bring you out. Out of the graves of addiction, out of the grave of shame, out of the grave of hurt, out of the grave of hopelessness, out of the grave of feeling alone. God's promise is whatever grave that we're in, he will bring us out of that because God is in the business of bringing life out of death. God also gives us a vision. We, we get the gift of being able to see things differently. We get the gift of being able to see with the eyes of faith, of knowing who God is and what God is capable of. We get the gift of knowing that there's always hope. As long as God is present, there's hope. As long as God's spirit is with us, there's hope because he is constantly breathing new life into our situations. Because we've learned over and over in these stories that the God factor changes everything. It, it's the thing that makes the big difference. We might have you know, a, a very impressive resume. We might have incredible skill set, but we will always come up to the end of what we can do. But then we have the promise of the God factor, of God being present with us, and that's enough to bring hope. That's enough to know that there can be change. So these are stories of origin. They tell us about us, and they tell us about God. What are some of the things we learn from this? Well, we learn that God can bring life out of death. We learn that there's always hope, and we learn that God has not given up on us. So let me ask you three questions. In what area of your life are you tempted to give up hope? Number two, what experience do you have of God breathing new life into a situation? And number three, what does this story tell you about the character of God?